0: Hi, my name is Wendy Weber.
1: And my name is Sydney Bowie.
0: Welcome to Nobody Chooses
1: Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution.
0: In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again.
1: We work for City Relief. A nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness.
0: City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging.
1: We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness.
0: We believe that in order to end homelessness it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need.
1: It is our pleasure to introduce you to Susan Greenfield, a brilliant editor who has dedicated her life to bringing the unheard voices of the homeless community to light.
0: Her latest book, Sacred Shelter, is an eye-opening look at the lives of 13 formerly unhoused people in New York who have graduated from an interfaith life skills program for homeless individuals. Through frank and honest interviews, these individuals share their experiences with homelessness and the healing they have found through community and faith.
1: Greenfield's work highlights the resilience and strength of these remarkable individuals who are often overlooked in our society. She is joined by Dennis Barton, who was profiled in the book.
0: Dennis has turned his life around and dedicated his time to helping others. Dennis's story is truly inspiring. As a young man, he faced years of addiction, incarceration, and homelessness. However, with the help of the Educational Opportunity Program, he was able to get back on his
1: feet. Today, Barton is an ordained deacon and an active member of the Interfaith Assembly on Homelessness and Housing Speakers Bureau. He is also a workshop facilitator at Planned Parenthood of New York City.
0: His story is a testament to the power of second chances and the importance of community support. We are excited to dive into a conversation with Susan and Dennis and learn more about their extraordinary work. Well, hello, Susan and Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you here.
2: Thank you All for right. having us here.
0: Absolutely. Susan, I want to start with you. Um, so you were uh, the editor of a book called Sacred Shelter, as we mentioned. Um, how did the project, how did this project come uh, come into existence?
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us here. Um, Sacred Shelter, the full name is Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing. It grew out of a life skills empowerment program um, developed over 30 years ago, especially by Catholic charities and an organization called Interfaith Assembly on Homelessness and Housing. And through those programs, I became involved as a volunteer in one of those programs. And one of the things the program asked participants to do, and, and the participants were people who were experiencing or had experienced homelessness asked participants to tell their life stories. And I got involved because I'm an English professor in helping people think through and write down their life stories. And then eventually, um, George Horton, who was running the Catholic Charities version of the program for um, many decades, said something to the effect of, I really wish we had some of these stories collected because over the years, over a thousand people have told their thousand people who've experienced homelessness have told their life story, but there is no formal collection of any of the stories. And uh, eventually um, we convened an advisory board that included Dennis um, and two other people who had been members of the program, Michelle Riddle and James Edison, and then uh, Mark Greenberg, George Horton, and myself. And we together, um, Developed the idea about the book and how to go about the book, and I conducted the interviews and edited the book. But it was very much a broad-based project involving people who had been in the programs, and and I would just add also um, that as someone, you know, as as a scholar, um, I was particularly. Uh, eager to make sure that some of these stories got archived and registered because there are so many thousands of people who've told them and there's very few records of them. And I think that, you know, this is American history. This is These are, are extremely important people. In my mind, people who've experienced homelessness are extremely important people. They are living a certain aspect of American history, uh, a shameful one. Not, not shame to them, but shame to the historical circumstances. And their stories need to be heard, need to be archived, need to be preserved. And this is one small part of doing that.
1: Susan, I love your perspective on that. Um, that, this, that this is a part of American history that needs to be, to be told. Um, could you share a little bit about your, like your upbringing, your cultural upbringing, and how that impacted your view of homelessness?
2: You know, I I grew up in a a liberal Jewish family. I grew up knowing a lot about discrimination. Uh, I grew up knowing about the Holocaust. My parents grew up during the depression, my father in particular, in a very poor family. And I grew up, both my parents were politically active and politically um, aware of issues of social justice that was kind of in my blood and my bones. And also because I knew, especially about history of discrimination against Jews, um, I was sensitized to that, uh, but my, I was also sensitized to uh, racial discrimination in this country, the history of it. My father went down South during Freedom Summer to do pro bono work. He was also involved in the Coalition for Homeless in the legal cases they brought to uh, guarantee the rights of shelter. He um, was a lawyer. My mother was always politically active. And I just wanted to say that the other thing I thought about as I was preparing for this was that though I knew about the kinds of injustices that my parents had experienced and um, their generation, you know, growing up Jewish in America when I did was was fairly cushy. Uh, for me at least, and also my father ended up being very financially successful. I also knew that while past generations had struggled, I was living an incredibly privileged life. And I was very aware of other kinds of discrimination, um, particularly discrimination against people who were black and brown. I was just extremely aware of that. And also very aware how arbitrary my privilege was how random it was, and because of what I knew about history, I knew things could change on the dime. So I was aware that I was advantaged, that other people weren't, and that it was grossly unfair. <laughs> um, I think that's something I've known for a long, long time. I don't remember not knowing that.
0: That's a really powerful thing, and um, it's something that many people don't come to know People who are privileged don't choose to know or come to know. Um, so having that knowledge has certainly affected the work that you are doing, I, I, w- I would imagine. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. I mean, it. you know, it meant being a child who was kind of very sensitized and appalled. It was kind of weird and lonely in that way. But, you know, I wouldn't change it. I think one needs to understand one needs to know. And, and it's, it's, it is something that, you know, I feel people really need to um, be aware of and aren't, you know, people who have privileges, even, even someone like my father who obviously worked extremely hard to end up in a much different life than he had as a child. Um, You know, to some extent that's merit, but you know, He still was white he still um, had all kinds of advantages that other people didn't have and certainly my accomplishments in life while i'm glad for them um i've always seen as a result of good luck
0: (laughs) hard work but
2: good luck first
0: i agree that's important so
2: tell me um how did you meet dennis well dennis (laughs) and i don't can you see dennis
0: Yes, we can see Dennis.
2: Dennis. There he is. Hello, Dennis. Um, When I first got involved in the Life Skills Empowerment Program as a volunteer, I actually got involved through my synagogue. It's a long story that I don't think we have time for. But Dennis was the person facilitating the group. He was the one running the group um, with people who um, were then currently experiencing homelessness. And he was the big, as we would say in Yiddish, macher. He was the big man, and um, he was so charismatic. I loved him from the very beginning, and as I always like to say, he never remembered my name or could remember me from one way to the next. Um, I would always, you know, I met him and I was like, I want him for a friend, and he was like, he always confused me with the other white lady, and, and it, it was, um, but over time, I guess I made an impression, It took a while. And um, so I met Dennis when he was in charge and um, fell immediately into the, you know, gravitational force of his charisma and goodness.
1: At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people.
2: This podcast is
0: brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury.
1: They are a national injury law firm that has won over $500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation.
0: Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life.
1: If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Buttafuoco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at one 800 or 1-800-669-4878. Dennis, if you could share just a little bit about your, your cultural upbringing as well, your childhood and just kind of your story a little bit.
3: I guess my cultural upbringing would be the opposite. I was born and raised in the South. The South Bronx, that is. And um, I am the son of a woman who came north during the Great Migration from the South. Um, uh, my mom was from, from South Carolina. Um, she came north for a better life. She left my older brother there um, and came north and settled in and then brought him here. I was, I was born 17 years later. My brother and I had 17 years between us. And so therefore, you know, I pretty much was an only child because my brother had probably moved, you know, he moved out, but he would always come home. He was the man in the family. You know, my father, if he walked through his door right now, I wouldn't know him. And that's just the way that was. I'm the grandson of, of sharecroppers from South Carolina. Um, I grew up, my mom stressed education. There wasn't There wasn't a time I can remember that my mother didn't stress education. The first thing I read, I learned to read was the Lord's Prayer from the big Bible that sat on our dresser. Um, My brother had left his old high school history book. That was the next thing that I started working through. My mother would send me to school. She made sure I went to school every day. So when Susan talks about privilege, you know, I did Experience some privilege, educational privilege. I could read, write. Um, Susan let me know a, a few years ago that I was an on track student. Well, he know? was
2: actually, he showed me his fifth grade um, class picture, and you could tell from, because I had also gone to New York City Public School, you could tell from the number that he was in the top class. He was in the, you know, they ranked the classes, and Dennis was in the gifted and talented class.
3: And and yeah, and so that I didn't know
2: that that's that 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 always amazes me like
3: Um, that as as I think about it now, that educational privilege served me. You know, I've done time. You know, I've been incarcerated. I've been uh, um, I've had state sentences, you know, and while I was in prison, you know, um, I had guys coming to me asking me, can you help me write a letter home? That's where that educational privilege comes in. That has served me well. It has served me um, in the sense that when I, I am also a, a person who went through the life skills program, right, at Catholic Charities and then was tapped, you know, was asked by, the, the, uh, by George Horton and Mark Greenberg to actually facilitate a program at Susan Synagogue. You know, and I think that was because they saw that in me. I, I, I was homeless for 14 years, physically homeless for 14 years. I was a drug addict for 30 years, over 30 years. Um, and by the grace of God and, and, and the help of others and the help of people like Susan and George and Mark and, and so many others, I sit before you today, you know, an, another person, a different person. Than I was back then. Um, as I opened up, I have three daughters, five granddaughters, and two great-granddaughters, and they all call me at some time or another. You know, um, today I, I I actually work for Planned Parenthood of Greater New York. I work in the education department. Um, I do workshops for parents on parent-child communication.
0: So I had the privilege of reading your story. It's one of the stories in the book Sacred Shelter that. Susan edited. Um, fascinating! Um, what a what an amazing story! I'm sure we'll have the link in the bio of this episode, so people can take a look at that. But um, between the uh, between the childhood and starting to experience homelessness, what what kind of led to that experience of homelessness for you?
3: What led to the to the to the homelessness? And, and Susan asked me this question one time. You know it was directly related to the drug abuse. I grew up, I grew up in the sixties, you know? I'm one of them people that still remembers a draft card. Young man might not know what that is, but you know, um, I, I actually had a draft card, right? And I grew up in that time where there was a real proliferation of drugs in the South Bronx. We seemed like we were the drug capital of the world at that time and, and today, and it's no different today. You know, um, I struggled through the, the 60s and 70s, and then somewhere around the 80s, it really came to a head. And I think it came to a head when I started smoking crack, you know? Um, I, did, I did heroin, I did cocaine, you know, I even dabbled in a little acid and all of that 60s mess. But I think that when I started to do co- uh, uh, crack cocaine, that was the most insidious drug in my personal belief that there was. It just, it just led me to places that I never thought I would be. You know, you're, you're out there chasing the, the high lasts what, all of 35, 40 seconds. And then you're chasing that high again. So um, it was drug use. You know, I, I, by the time I started smoking crack, I had already been upstate. I had already been to college, you know, while I was upstate. And I came home and relapsed. I started smoking crack, and that led directly to the homelessness. Yeah, I could have went to my mom's. I could have went to my girlfriend's, but, you know, I mean, I couldn't do that.
1: I wouldn't do that to them. Yeah. I, I, like, so right there, I think one of the things that stuck out the most to me uh, when I was reading your story was what you specifically said about that. Like, you were going through your addiction and you are not going to go back to your mind. Like you didn't want to be one of those people who was going to their family's house and stealing a TV and stealing something to sell it. Like you refused to do that to them, right? Um, And I think so often people's concepts of someone who is, you know, either homeless, someone who is dealing with addiction is, you know, that person is not caring about anybody but themselves. They're just out there for themselves trying to figure something out. And you had this mindset of like, no, I'm like even in what I'm going through, I don't want to put my mom through that. I don't want put my family through that. I think I think that would be one of them, but what are some of the, uh, the misconceptions that you think some people have about someone who is either struggling with homelessness or someone who's struggling with addiction? Like some thoughts that people just have, like, this is how that person is. This is like, they would know everything about them. And you're like, really, if you were actually to talk to somebody, it would be different than what you think.
3: I think one of the misconceptions that people have, you know, you see somebody who's homeless on the street you know, and I've experienced this myself. You'll you'll be on the train or you'll be panhandling somewhere. I used to panhandle in Wall Street because they had money down there. You know, you're panhandling or something like that. And somebody will just say, oh, why don't you just go get a job? Well, maybe you're not in that place yet. That's a misconception. That's a misconception that if people automatically put on people that, oh, this, this person looks healthy and, and everything. They may be healthy physically, but... What is their mental and emotional state at that time? That's a misconception, right? Um, It's a misconception that that people who are on drugs or or are homeless can't change. That's a misconception on the other side of that. You know, you can change. 20 something years ago, I was sleeping on the train and you're sleeping in parks and rooftops and things. Today I live in a, a 55 story high rise with a rooftop garden. So, you know, yeah, and that came about because of change. Another misconception is that people think that they can change other people. You can't change anybody until they're willing to change themselves. It wasn't until I woke up one day in a a bullpen and said, you know what, I can't do this anymore.
2: I I also just want to point out that one of the things There are so many amazing things about Dennis's story, but even when Dennis was experiencing homelessness, he was a valued member of the community. Um, Dennis used to help supers clean up. Mm -hmm. He used to help um, women carry their groceries. Um, I I think that there's also that aspect to your story that's so important, is the idea that somehow a person experiencing homelessness is simply... um, a problem. Dennis was was really a valued member of the community in which he lived for a long, long time. Even though he was experiencing homelessness,
3: I don't know how valued I, I might have people might uh, identify or say it's valued. What it was was my mother always taught me. You understand? My mother said I came to New York. It was a big sign, and my mother only, could only read third grade level. She said it was a big sign that said, "This isn't gimme New York." This is get out and get it, New York. My mother always taught me to work for mine. And so when I was experiencing homelessness and I had this drug habit with this gorilla on my back, right, how was I going to make money? How was I going to feed that habit? One of the ways that I was able to feed that habit is by helping in communities. You know, I wasn't no good thief. I got caught every time. You know, that's why I'm going to stay I, I think you with, helped people. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I help people. I earned respect in some ways. I helped, I help people, you know, in the book you, you'll read. Um, and I earned the respect of people in neighborhoods, you know. Um, but I still, you know, was struggling with an addiction. Sometimes, sometimes people trusted me. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes I lost trust with people, you know, just by my actions. So, um, yeah, I did help people, but I think that, that was more along the lines so, of, you know, my mother always told me work for yours. I had a shoe shine box when I was when I was nine years old. But Shiner's- you were
2: hardworking. Yeah, so this is the thing. I end up defending Dennis, but uh, to Dennis, but but like you were collecting bottles
3: and cans. You know, yes, um, did all that scrap iron. You know, if if and if, also if,
2: I want the Bible. You were you carried the Bible with you.
3: Uh, that's another part of my story. You know, my mother used to get me a as long as I can remember, get up and go to church, put me up, put me a suit on and some clothes on and say, go on with, with, with the other kids, go on to church. But mama, why you ain't going to church? Don't do what I do, do what I say, do. And I, you know, I was brought up in the church. I was always brought up to believe, you know, like I said, there was a big, huge Bible sitting on our, 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 our dresser. And that's what I really started to learn to read, looking at the pictures in there and, and, and just having that, Foundation. I call that the foundation that you build your house on. Sometimes that house gets rickety over the years, but that foundation is there. When I went upstate, when I went upstate the first time, you know, I tried to pray my way out of jail, but then somebody said, you're not going to pray your way out of jail. You're going to have to change your actions.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting that um, Susan, what she's saying are also things that people have misconceptions so- about, right? That. Um, someone experiencing homelessness, they couldn't be a person of faith. They couldn't be someone who respects their mother. They couldn't be someone who works hard, right? And so I, it is important and, and fascinating and, and important not just to read your story, Dennis, which I very much enjoyed, but all of those stories and the thousands of other stories because every story is different and unique. Every path to homelessness is different and unique.
3: I want to speak to, to the rest of the people in the book. You know, one thing that you, you'll notice throughout the book, we all have that sense of spirituality. We may not belong to an organized religion, but we have a sense of spirituality. We know that there was somebody besides us helping us to achieve. Um, and, and, and I give it to all, all the people in, in this book. I'm just, I'm just here to as a representative I tell people all, you know, when I go out and speak and I share my story, I say, this is my story. Um, other stories are different, but we share some things in common. I guess by sharing my story, you know, others can look and see people they know or people they've seen. What can be for them?
2: And But, but I also think, like, just p- picking up on what Wendy said, um, is you know Dennis talks about crying at night thinking about his children and that's also really true of everyone in the book people who experience homelessness mm-hmm. love their families mm-hmm. love their children they're they're human beings who are struggling but they're human beings and they're not so different
3: i look at homeless people today right i look at people you know i was just on a train coming up here and i i saw home, people who were Unhoused, I think the term is nowadays, you know, people who are unhoused. And I look at them and I say, there by the grace of God, go I. Even when, you know. I say it too. Yeah. There by the grace of God, go I. You know, you, know, you never know when can happen, you know. I don't take anything for granted anymore. Sometimes I equate it to, you know, Bible um, scripture, you know. I've been to the, I've been to the gates of hell. I've been there and somehow God reached down and pulled me up and said, you know what? I got something else for you to do.
0: City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact in homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. So tell us the story then. How did you transition from transition
3: from being unhealthy? November 29th, 1999. I got busted. I got busted for selling $5 worth of crack to an, uh, a police informant. I got to the bullpens that night. Now, this was my this was like this cap many arrests. And I was headed for my state, my second state bid. Right. Um, I got to the bullpens that night. Um, I was like somewhere like 40, 49, 50 years old. Right. And, and I walked into the bullpens and guys were saying, yo, grandpa, what you got busted for? At that point, I knew, I knew I had to change. I can't do this anymore. You know, if I have to go upstate, I can't go up there and go to gladiator school and fight with these people and everything like that. So I made a decision, I made a decision, you know what? And at that time, this is my second go around in the state. The first time I went to college while I was in prison. This time I said, you know what, you're smarter than this. You can do better than this. And I made a decision. I went back and forth to court for a year. They offered me a sentence of one to three. I copped out. I went upstate for about six months and was released to the shelter system. First time I had ever been in a shelter. I went to Bellevue Men's Shelter. I immediately, immediately sought out some kind of, of help. And that help came in the form of Ms. Ballard, who was the director of the shelter at that time. I told her, my, you know, I met with her. I told her my story. She said, Dennis, I'm going to put you on the sixth floor where um, we have a clean and sober unit. You're required to get in a program and you're required to go to two outside meetings. Well, my parole officer already required me for, to have a program. Ms. Ballard called my parole officer and said, I got a program for him right across the street. I went to Bellevue um, substance abuse program, a day program where from from like nine to three in the afternoon. Right. I, I went to groups. I, I did, you know, everything that I, 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 I that was asked of me. I became president of patient government. Um, I um, I even got a therapist, you know, I'd walk I'd leave the program on Friday afternoons. Everybody asked me, where are you going? going to see my therapist. <laughs> you know, I, that was a biggie for me. And I did everything I had to do. At this point, I stayed clean. Right. And then I was offered the opportunity to become part of the educational outreach program, a life skills empowerment program that was run by George Horton at Catholic Charities. I graduated from that program and never looked back. Never look back. You know, I, I, I was in the shelter for another, what, eight, nine months. And then um, I was able to get housing at a, a um, what they call an SRO, a, a supportive housing right here on 97th Street. Right. I stayed there for almost 14 years in supportive housing, but never looking back and, and being thankful and grateful for the people who were in my life who I think of all as mentors and, 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 you know, just encouragement. And, um, five years ago, um, I hit the lottery. Well, the housing lottery, you know, the housing lottery. And they called me and and they looked at my, um, my financials and said, yeah, you qualify for this housing. And now I live in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn. His
2: building has a dog walk in the building,
3: a pool, a pool, a gym, a dog walk, media room, Sky Lounge. But but I want to say that I didn't do all of this by myself. I didn't do this by myself. First of all, let me give credit to God, because he was there throughout this walk, throughout every day of my life. But then people like Susan, like George, like Mark, you know, um, Rabbi Kalmanowski, Susan's uh, 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 um, rabbi, And many others, many others that have helped helped keep me on the track, to help keep me on track. And what Susan didn't tell you is that she actually connected me with my fifth grade teacher. She was (laughs) reading the book.
2: That was a crazy, that was one crazy story. But I do want to say something before that, which is that Dennis left out how many hundreds of people he has helped. And I also just one thing I, I just feel compelled to say is that that whole idea of who helps whom under what circumstances, when you allow people to help you, I believe this so much, you're doing them a favor mm-hmm. um, that it, I think we're too apt to divide things into those who need help and those who give help instead of the recognition that it's a mutual relationship. And that even when someone is receiving, they are giving because it's so, such a rare and wonderful feeling to be in a position to be able to help someone. And what I felt when I first came into the program and I was supposedly helping people is that I was being helped enormously. I I myself was struggling with some mental health challenges at that point and I was being helped enormously and I was very grateful to the people who were letting me quote unquote help them. And I also want to say that I've seen Dennis in action and I know how many people he has helped. And I know how much he helped me when I first began to volunteer in that pro- program. So I, I think that, you know, it'd be nice to have a society where it was much more, there was a lot more mutuality about the whole idea. Like, you know, you need help now. I'll need help then. We're going to be mm-hmm. in this together. Yeah. Um,
3: One hand washes the other, both hands wash the face. Those are like the kind of axioms that I use in my life. When I was growing up, one thing that my mother had, um, there was a plaque on the wall. It was old cardboard, little cardboard plaque that you probably bought in John's bargain for like 59 cents. But it was written with glitter paint on it. I remember it well. It was dark purple with gold glitter on it. And it simply said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's what my mother tried to instill in me. If I want to be treated right, I have to treat others right. You know, if you're helping people, you're helping yourself too.
2: And they're helping you.
1: And they're helping you. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely. Just even in the work that I am fortunate uh, enough to do, um, I have been it's interesting. Like you go out, the whole the somewhat of the mentality is we're going out to be a blessing and to help people. And so much of what I have received has been so much greater than I feel like what I could pour out. There'd be times I'm on a like a, a line and I'm connecting with people and praying over people. And I've had people come up and say something. I'm like, actually, I need you to pray over me. Like you've got something that I need to, you know, for you to deposit in me. So so I definitely resonate with that. Dennis, one of the most beautiful things about your story, I feel, and it's something you kind of spoke to uh, about your, you've made mention time and time again about your mom, um, and then you're talking about your daughters and granddaughters and this, this family, right, that you have. And it's just something I was kind of wondering, what would you say to someone who has a family member who is either struggling with homelessness, who's struggling with addiction, who maybe isn't able to be contacted as much? Um, as they would like, you know, they have a family member who's going through that. What would you say to someone who, you know, even it's just a word of encouragement for them to not give up on that person and, and how they can be in a, a proper mindset to to continue to think of whoever that person is, that family member they have in their life, as someone who is still capable of change? And, you know, what, what would you say to that person?
3: I say to that person, as I say to all people, whether you know a person You know, it's somebody in your family or it's a friend that, you know, you grew up with or just somebody, you know, in your neighborhood who's experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. Remember their humanity. Remember who they are. They are a child of God or whatever you believe in. They are a human being. You understand? Let me put it this way. There were times when people prayed for me when I could not or would not pray for myself. I believe in prayer, you know, but I I also believe that there there needs to be action. So sometimes if it's a family member, sometimes it may be just, you know, you, you start small, you know, just listening to them, hearing what they're saying. Don't just brush them off. Try to find out what is it that they really need, but always, always, and the work that you do, the work that you do, meeting people on the streets, You know, I go out and I speak to, I speak at synagogues and churches. I speak to uh, teen groups, high schools, all over the tri-state area now, right? And that question always comes up. What do you do when you meet a homeless person or you know a homeless person? Remember their humanity. Let me give you an illustration of that. My youngest daughter, her and her boyfriend were going to the movies one day, but they decided they wanted to have dinner first, so they went and had dinner at this fancy Upper East Side restaurant, right? They couldn't eat their food. So they got us to go play, right? And they sashayed over to the movie. Um, so they get to the movie and the guy says, no, you can't bring food in here. So my daughter says, well, I'll just take it outside and give it to a homeless guy. She walks outside, sees a guy in, in the doorway in, uh, 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 on 86th Street. And she says, here, I have some food for you. I know one of, the, one of the, 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 the lies in your head is hungry." And the guy looked up at her and said, no, thank you. My daughter was livid. She got on the phone and called me, knowing I have been homeless, right? She got on the phone and called me and she said, dang, I just tried to give this man $50 worth of food and he told me no. I said, what you? Now, what did my daughter do wrong there? What did she take from him?
0: The, <laughs> the dignity of choice, right?
3: Mm. She took his humanity,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, here, I'm giving this. I know you're hungry. Where well, she could have said something like, you know what? I have this extra food, right? Um, maybe you can use it or somebody you know can mm-hmm. use it. You can pass it on to somebody. That way you give, you give that person the chance to do a good deed for another, to do mitzvah, to do sadaka. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking Hebrew now.
2: We began this by talking about Dennis's family and the connection. And I wondered if you would tell the story about getting in touch with your eldest daughter.
3: Okay. So I had been in Bellevue shelter for a while. I had just graduated from, from um, the life skills empowerment program. And there's a stipend involved, you know, at the end of the program, you know, you get a little stipend. I got my first cell phone. So my mentor, which is part of the, the EOP program, the mentor, there's a mentor component, right? My mentor had, had given me ways to search online for people. I found, he, he gave me this, this website, anywho.com, right? I went on there and I started making searches. I searched for my, my wife, who you know, my first wife, right? We were separated. And I actually found her in South Carolina. Phone number and everything for free.
2: <laughs>
3: right? So I call her, right? I say, um, Hi, Gwen. How are you? She says, Who's this? I say, It's Dennis. She said, Oh, I thought you were dead. No, I'm not dead. I said, Gwen, where's Tania? That's my daughter. She said, Oh, she's living down here in South Carolina with me. You know, she moved from New York, so she moved to South Carolina. I said, Can I get her a number? Sure. I call my daughter. I'm, I called my daughter, right? And I, I said, "Tania. I said, "It's me, Daddy." She said, "Daddy, where you been? Where have you been?" I said, "I'm okay. I'm in a shelter in New York." And I, you know, we talked, and she said she said, um, "Daddy, don't go nowhere. Where's that shelter at? Don't go nowhere." This was the day before Christmas Eve. My daughter packed her three kids and her husband in her car and drove all the way from South Carolina to New York It pulled up to the shelter and called me and said, daddy, come downstairs. My daughter took me out to dinner at her mother-in-law's house, spent that time with me and then brought me back to the shelter. I asked my daughter, why did you do this? She said, because I love you. We knew, we knew where you were, you know, grandma never lied to us about what you were doing, but we love you. And so through that connection, I was able to connect with my other two daughters, one of whom, that youngest daughter, when I was at Catholic charities, there's a school downstairs, Cathedral high school, My daughter, my own daughter was going to that school while I was at Catholic Charities. I used to see this this little girl running around with these big glasses and skinny legs. I said, I know that child from somewhere. Six months after I graduated from the program, I found out that was my daughter. In the same building, she knew who I was, but, you know, a 14 year old, they may not they might not want to acknowledge that right then. So, you know, today I have all three of my daughters back in my life. They'll be calling me in another couple of minutes. Why? Look, see, there they go. Why you ain't home? Um, I have all three of my daughters back in my life. I have five granddaughters who I love. They love me. They think of me as a cool grandpa. I wouldn't
2: but go that far.
3: They say it. <laughs> Even their friends say it. Your grandpa cool. But um, you know, the fact that, that, that my daughter would, would, would jump in a car and drive all the way to New York to come see her dad, I had been missing in their lives for a lot of years. I was estranged from them for a lot of years, but my mom made sure they knew who I was. My mother, tell you how good my mother was. My mother would, just before school opened, she would buy school supplies and have all uh, the three kids come over and give them each a packet of school supplies and say, your daddy bought that for you. I ain't had a nickel in that dime.
2: You know, but this is, this is something that comes out throughout the the book is how many of the people in the book who, who are, you know, who have now, I don't even know what word to use because recovered sounds like it's just their fault, which I I do not believe, but who now have progressed whose lives have improved through various ways. But so many of them, you know, just to get back to your question, and I forget Sydney or Wendy who which of you asked it, but like what to tell families. So many of the people on the book, their families just continued to love them. And when the people were ready to 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 get help or to get housing or to try to get clean, their families were there for them. Um and in many cases, their families were there for them even before. Um, but the whole idea that you just keep loving someone um, because that's the right thing to do and because you love them, you don't stop loving someone because they're having a hard time, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and I like, Susan, how you're trying to choose the right word um, because recovery may sound like it's the person's fault. Yeah. Um, right. And that brings around the, the title of this podcast is Nobody Chooses Homelessness. Um, and I'd really love to hear from both of you how that phrase resonates with each of you from your own experience.
2: You know, I, I teach um, community engaged learning classes at Fordham on the subject of homelessness. And I'm a literature professor, so we also read uh, canonical literature as well as reading the stories of people in the book and other kinds of things. But it's so clear to me, at least, you know, and, and you, you folks know this, you don't need me to tell you this, but homelessness is the result of the lack of affordable housing. I mean, you know, that is the primary driver of homelessness. When people think about homelessness as someone's individual fault and individual responsibility, instead of, the law, instead of thinking of it in terms of the larger systemic pressures that result in certain people making individual decisions that lead to their homelessness. But when people forget the larger systemic situation, it becomes easy to blame someone Um, and to say, well, no, that person would rather be on the street. And yeah, of course you're going to meet people who will say something to that effect some of the time. But usually it will go something like, I would rather be on the street than in a shelter where I'm going to get knived or robbed, right? It just seems to me that you know and from what i've learned that the vast majority of people who experience homelessness experience it because of some kind of systemic problem it's no accident that a huge percentage of people who experience homelessness are brown and black you know if you think so so some people will say something like well you know people who are homeless a lot of them are mentally ill, and that's why they're homeless, and they don't want to do this, and they don't want to, like, go get their psychiatric treatment or, you know, whatever Eric Adams is saying these days or something <laughs> like that. But the um, the fact is that if you're a person who has resources and you have mental health challenges, you have all kinds of ways to get services that will, in many cases, prevent you. doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, but in many cases prevent you from ending up on the street or the idea that people... So so it's not like people become homeless because they have mental health challenges. It's like people with mental health challenges who do not have the kind of resources that some people with mental health challenges do are much more likely to become homeless. And the same thing is true of of substance abuse. Substance abuse does not in any way um, impact one population of people more than another population of people. It's widespread. It's simply if you do not have resources or do not have a home or you know or you're in certain neighborhoods where certain kinds of drugs are being pushed as opposed to other drugs right mm-hmm. if you're in neighborhoods where during the crack the epidemic crack in particular is being pushed you're going to be more vulnerable to the consequences of homelessness um, and then to somebody on the outside it looks like a choice um, when it's really the confluence of a lot of circumstances that if you were a person of more privilege and resource, you might very well not be in this position. This is not to say that there aren't people who've grown up privileged who end up homeless. Yes, that's the case. But the vast majority of people who end up experiencing homelessness um, are in much more um, constrained situations from the beginning in all kinds of ways.
3: I would just briefly add to that, you know, I think in the the first, part of the first thing I open up with in the book is it's systemic, you know? There are systemic causes to homelessness, drug addiction, poverty, violence. And until you start changing systems, it's going to perpetuate. I didn't have to be homeless. I didn't have to be homeless. In some some ways, it was a choice for me. I, you know, I was smoking crack, and I wanted to be out there. I didn't want to, I don't want to be, didn't want to be constrained. But not everybody has that that choice. Do
2: you feel like you chose homelessness?
3: Well, not chose it, but you know, I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, the idea of being addicted, you know,
2: do you think that was a choice?
3: Yeah, I was smoking it. But But it was available. That's what I mean by that. See, that's where that's where it starts to get. It's available. You know, I grew up in the South Bronx. The South Bronx was the dope and coke capital of the world during the sixties. Who did we have to look up to? You know, the guy who was running around in the big Cadillac selling dope. I think it was it was circumstances. I think circumstances, um, environment. But I mean there's systemic things that happen in our community. I'm talking about the the black and brown community. There are systemic things that happen for us that move us toward as people say, being underserved or that move us toward homelessness and um addictions. When I was growing up, you know the first thing the cops wanted to do was arrest you and get you fingerprinted. You know why? That's social stratification. you get, you got fingerprinted. You now have a record. And when I was coming up, they wasn't so, it wasn't like, Oh, you still got a record. You got a record, but we're going to overlook it. No, you had a record. You couldn't get a barber's license. You couldn't get a, a hack license to drive a cab. It was so many doors closed to you
1: just because you had
3: been fingerprinted.
1: So with that thought, right, of understanding so much of this is systemic, right? And there are systematic changes that need to be made for the everyday, just individual person. What is something that you would say is one thing they could do, you know, to impact ending homelessness? Just that every, you know, again, it's if it's what it looks like to begin to bring change to a system. But what is one thing that person could do to vote? That was going to be
3: my answer, too. That's why I looked at Susan. You know, Susan knows. Susan knows. Vote.
2: I mean, so many young people. It's quite amazing the number of young people, especially, but not only young people who don't believe their vote matters. Um, You want to vote for people who are supportive of public, um, of of affordable housing, public housing, uh, supportive housing. It's extremely important. And also um, for people who do not blame individuals but think about systems, um, I don't think people are nearly aware enough of how much homelessness is the result of political um, economic forces that can, at least to some extent, be affected by voting. And then, of course, you can also volunteer, and you can volunteer your money if you have it, For various organizations like yours and others that um, work to advocate on behalf of people experiencing homelessness, political particularly political advocacy, uh, which is what's needed to change things. I mean, Coalition for the Homeless did something amazing many years ago, but it's not enough. But what they did in New York is they made, uh, they created, they they petitioned for a law that is now in effect that every family, every man, every woman, every child is entitled to shelter. It is a right, right? Um, many other states don't have that. And people like the governors of Texas and uh, Florida are abusing and mocking that when they send um, 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 asylum seekers here to kind of overload the system. But that was a major Event and you needed a lot of people coming together to um, change the laws. Well, we still need a lot more change.
3: All my, all three of my granddaughters down in, in Georgia are are of voting age. They will tell you I hounded them, I hounded them to go vote. You know, as a as a uh, uh, a convicted felon. Right. During state time, you lose your right to vote in New York State, you lose your right to vote. But once you finished your sentence and all parole, you get that right back here in New York. What's the first thing I did when I got my right back? I voted and I voted in every election since. You know, I don't care if if it's if it's an election for dog catcher. I'm voting. And I encourage everybody I meet go vote. I can't tell you who to vote for, but go vote. You know, make your voice. You know, in in our communities, um, I'm working with a group right now in the South Bronx who is is, are trying to hold a a voter um, education forum, and they've asked me to come as a as a panelist to to give my experience of. Being, you know, an ex-felon who, who has now got his right to vote back. Um, this is, this is, uh, uh, um, a group that has come together to try because in the Bronx last time, last election had the lowest, the lowest number of people voting. What we need to do, we need to get people to vote, understand how much power that vote. You know what? People died for me to have this right to vote. I'm black. There were times, when, you know, my great-grandfather didn't even have that right. He was two-fifths of a what? Of a person? People died for me to get this right, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it. I'm so glad I live in New York State where I was able to get my vote back.
0: Well, that's a great, that's a great way to end this episode with those, um, those encouraging words from both of you. Um, it's been a delight to talk to you. And get to know your faces. Dennis, I loved reading your story, as I said, and I encourage everybody to read Sacred Shelter. Thank you guys both so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much. It was great talking to both of you, and thank you for the work you do, both of you.
1: Yes, thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Hey, you, yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.